now, listeners to previous episodes of the podcast, we we'll the absence of one certain Claire for the sake of completeness doing, who's gone on recently to embark on a new adventure, but here to keep me on the straight and narrow and to ensure I don't up, end up uh, encanting an incoherent dirge into the microphone here, or to minimise the same, is a great friend of the National Folklore Collections and someone I'm delighted to have come and share his knowledge with us, and that is namely uh, Billy McGlynn. And Billy taught me here in the Department of Folklore back when I first started studying in here in 2007. Um, and actually, Billy was the first person to show me the manuscripts here, I remember. And he completed his PhD in folklore in 2013. I'm looking at your PhD beside me on the desk here, really getting vertigo, looking at the thing. <laughs> and, uh, There's this, a lot of it there, all right. There is, yeah. And uh, the, that was published in 2016 um, under the FF Communications Journal's Folklore Fellows, which is an amazing, amazing series to be part of, as Blood Rite, the Feast of St. Martin in Ireland. And um, I saw I saw a copy of that online uh, for sale. I don't know if you've looked, Billy, but they're for sale for a good couple of hundred quid out, out doing the handbook itself. So someone, <laughs> someone is either trying to um, get a new patio built onto their gaff or an attic conversion or something like that. But an amazing. Well, it's, it's not me anyway, John. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> amazing, amazing book. Um, Billy, you do works in television and media. You have a background in archaeology as well. And uh, we'll talk more about that to us. And more recently, you started working as a celebrant for the Humanist Association of Ireland. Um, so delighted to have you on to Bruni and to kind of, I suppose, to mark the beginning of a new series. Um, and maybe just, I suppose, for, for anyone listening in, maybe just to give them a bit of a background about yourself, about maybe how you even got interested in folk tradition or folklore in the first place. Okay, okay. Well, let me start off by saying uh, what a great pleasure it is for me to be on this wonderful series. I've been listening to it since the start, so this is uh, a wonderful uh, thing to be part of, so thank you very much. So, my own story, I started off many, many years ago in art college, um, and I was supposed to be up in the studio drawing and making sculpture and things like that, and I found myself down in the library instead reading books. So after a year of that, I kind of stopped kidding myself and I went to Dublin and I um, did an arts degree in UCD and um, folklore was not a first year subject at that point. So I did Celtic civilizations in first year, but I also did archaeology. And then I went to a wonderful lecture by the late Dahio Hogan, who came to the archaeology department to teach us about folklore and the possibility of doing it in second and third year. And as soon as I heard that, I was hooked. So... Um, the rest was written. I did my degree there in archaeology and folklore, and then I took some time off and came back and, like you say, um, completed my PhD there uh, on the topic of the Feast of St. Martin in Ireland. And I found that just a really fascinating subject because of how strange the customs and practices associated with that feast day are, and it was something that intrigued me. So I pursued it to uh, as deep a level as I could, I suppose, and then I had the very great fortune of being able to publish it um, afterwards. So... It's amazing that he is such an inspiration for the two of us, I suppose. That is the same. His, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, his, his lectures were incredible. Um, yeah. But yeah, I suppose it, it kind of fits as well as we consider, I suppose, those who have gone before us, even in the context of this episode. Um, so I'll move, I suppose, on to just to discuss maybe the topic under consideration for this edition of, of Glorini that we're, we're basically going to look at a feast date which has an enormous amount of, I suppose, imaginative power and symbolic resonance to it, as well as an enormous corpus of, kind of custom, belief and practice pertaining to it. 
that while still rooted in, in antiquity, it forms a kind of vibrant hinge point or an access point on the traditional calendar year to this day. Um, and so we're going to discuss one of the big quarter days, so-called in folk tradition, namely the Festival of Sound or, or Halloween, um, which is a time, I suppose, when the harvest haven't been kind of gathered in, the fields kind of fallow and bare, kind of colder, wetter weather setting in and um, life will kind of turn inward again. So I suppose we're going to look at maybe some of the themes that arise um, start as a, as a rough kind of outline to how we'll kind of follow the conversation over the next while. We'll start maybe with some of the early literature before looking at more recent celebrations and ways that the custom was marked. Um, and then it's also worth noting that uh, there'll be some music throughout the course of this episode. So from two projects, two groups that I very much enjoy, one at Halo Manash from Finland and another one at Gast from Norway, uh, two countries actually which had a lot to do with the study of and, and the I suppose the analysis of folk tradition in Ireland and further fields in Europe. So, and then to close, we'll have a little piece that I suppose Billy, myself, and yourself have kind of half composed in a way. Um, but yes, uh, more anon. So to start, maybe um, I mean, one thing you'd be able to clear up for me that I wouldn't have much of a sense of would be the archaeological record and sound. And is there much of a? Do we see much in that regard? It's very difficult to say. Um... You know, something like a feast day or a festival is going to be an impossible thing to to detect archaeologically, I think. Um, what you can see, perhaps, is at great assembly sites that there were particular events, I think, um, where people gathered together. And there is traditions, there's things in folk literature um, and in the manuscript traditions of medieval Ireland, Ireland which talk about great assemblies happening at Samhain. Um at places like Tara and at Awanmacha and those kind of great ritual centres that we know date from the Iron Age. Now, whether this was medieval monks and, and um, people composing literature and sort of situating it in what was to them um, a fictional historical past, or whether they're describing memories of ancient events, again, it's difficult to say. So tying in literature with, with archaeology is probably something that, um, in a general sense, you can do, but to say they were definitely here around the Feast of Sound is something trickier um, to be able to conclusively prove. But I think the balance of probability is that these great these sites were places of assembly, and we know that there was, you know, the likelihood, I think, is that these high holy days, these feast days, these days of people coming together, um, I think they probably did. There's um the Fraser uh, the the Golden Bow which is I was a bit of crack book I remember loved reading back in the day there was there's um a piece that he mentions about about Halloween and bonfires but the, the kind of the division of the year I suppose which will be worth looking at before going back just to the point of archaeology and, and some of the early literature I'll just read this out if you don't mind right this is a piece from from his text talking about the division of the year and he says from the foregoing survey we may infer that among the heathen forefathers of european peoples the most popular and widespread fire festival of the year was the great celebration of midsummer eve or midsummer day the coincidence of the festival with the summer solstice can hardly be accidental rather we must suppose that our pagan ancestors purposely timed the ceremony of a fire on earth to coincide with the arrival of the sun at the highest point of his course in the sky if that was so it follows the old founders of the midsummer rites had observed the solstices or turning points of the sun's apparent path in the sky that they accordingly regulated their festal calendar to some extent by astronomical considerations. But while this may be regarded as fairly certain for what we may call the Aborigines throughout a large part of the continent, it appears not to have been true of the Celtic peoples who inhabited the land's end of Europe, the islands and promontories that stretch out into the Atlantic Ocean on the northwest. 
The principal fire festivals of the Celts, which have survived, though in a restricted area with diminished pomp, to modern times and even to our own day, were seemingly timed without any reference to the position of the sun in the heaven. They were two in number and fell at an interval of six months, one being celebrated on the eve of May Day and the other on All Hallow Eve or Halloween, as it's now commonly called. That is the 31st of October. So there's, I suppose, the, the, uh, something that you had written in an article about this twofold division of the year. Yeah. But, but that seems not to have been related to um, to either crops or the, the bringing in of crops, but, and, and nor as to the solstice, say, but there was a division of the light half of the year, the darker half of the year, uh, and that may have related to kind of cattle, is what, what Fraser is suggesting, I suppose, in that text, that it was a, a part of the herdsman's year. Yeah, I don't often agree with Fraser on, on a whole lot of things, but this is definitely one I think that uh, he was correct on, and that this is that the pastoral year, this is for people who are grazing herds. And, you know, perhaps he was being general when he talked about Celts, but it's certainly the case for the girls and perhaps the prehistoric Irish as well, that the, the year was divided into two. I think that it is perhaps uh, an inheritance of the Indo-Europeans and really you're talking about a pastoral people who would drive the cattle to the upland, you know, using transhumance, um, this idea of grazing the cattle in, in an upland during the summer and then bringing them closer to the farm for the winter. So we see around the time, around um, the turning point from spring into summer and around the turning point from autumn into winter, um, we see the movement of cattle, the protection of cattle. The, um, these themes becoming important and both of those transition points from winter to summer and summer to winter we see them as being very important in a mythological sense there's a lot of stories supernatural activities happening around this time um, and there's this very keen sense in a lot of Irish tradition even to modern times you know the correct time for storytelling would be from Samhain to Gautama so we, we kind of have the light and ha dark half of the year divided up and these turning points are the vital ones. And because they are transition points, these liminal points are threshold points in the year, I think they attract a lot of ideas to do with the supernatural, to do with um, having ritual and ceremonial importance to them.
there's a note we have here for we're talking about assemblies and fairs and you'd mentioned in the early literature but how it's so difficult you can't really it's hard to kind of connect that to the archaeological record but um there's a, a piece again in keating's history of ireland about about um the fesh of tara and he describes it here at sound he says now the fesh of tara was a, a great general assembly like a parliament in which the nobles and the others of Ireland used to meet at Tara every third year at Saun, where they were wont to lay down and to renew rules and laws and to approve the annals and records of Ireland. There too it was arranged that each of the nobles of Ireland should have a seat according to his rank and title. There also a seat was arranged for every leader that commanded the soldiery who were in the service of the kings and the lords of Ireland. It was also the custom at the Fesh of Tara to put to death anyone who committed violence or robbery, who struck another or who assaulted another with arms, while neither the king himself nor anyone else had power to pardon him such a deed. It was also their custom to pass six days in feasting together before the sitting of the assembly, namely three days before sound and three days after it, making peace and entering into friendly alliances with each other. Uh, and then a poem is kind of given on that, that describes um, some of the, the kind of practices. But there's also mention in Keating's, in the history of art about... Um, Clachka and then the, the fires that were there. We know that Clachka, this, this place, or sometimes referred to in English as the Hill of Ward, this place that um, was supposedly the centre of great uh, ceremony and ritual at Samhain, that it definitely was a ceremonial or a ritual centre from probably at least the Middle Bronze Age. Um, and it, it, activity there seems to have persisted until perhaps the 5th century, I think maybe late 4th, early 5th century. Recent excavations have shown that the site was quite a, uh, an extensive and much bigger than we thought archaeological complex. So, you know, there's probably some grain of truth to it, but the precise details, this notion of, um, you know, promulgating laws and, and passing judgments and all of this kind of stuff, who knows, perhaps. I think those those events, those kinds of events would probably take place as part of any sort of complex society, and there's no reason to think that Arnage uh, society was any... Uh, would be an exception to that but whether it specifically was at that particular time at that particular place who knows it's it's always hazardous to try and uh, reconstruct based on these fragments that we have but um nevertheless it's better than nothing so uh you know the jury's out i think until we find a, an inscription or a, a much more solid piece of information you know, saying what time of year, what it is. Sometimes they can tell um, from the the age of the, the cattle or the pigs that were slaughtered on site, whether these were autumn festivals or spring festivals. And there is some, in some of these ritual sites, a uh, tendency towards uh, autumn as being perhaps the time when they were slaughtering animals. But that is the natural time of year to be slaughtering animals anyway. So I suppose we can talk about that later. But um, And uh, what about, you know, the, the, um, the I remember Dahi talking about in his in his lectures, using the word the word sound coming from an older word meaning half. Usually the word sound is is meant to define or to describe um uh, as summer's end. I've read. Yeah, there there's a couple of competing I think etymologies. The two that stand out to me I think are are this notion that uh, it perhaps comes from samanos or samonios something like this, an old Celtic proto Celtic word. Um, but another one that I have heard posited is that it perhaps come from a word which means assembly, so that it was this notion of great assemblies are coming together. Um, again, in the absence of definitive proof, we can only sort of look at the, the, the best likelihoods, but both seem to fit the pattern. So it could be either or, or perhaps it was a word play on, on both. I, I'm we not sure. Bold assertions, sure. bold unfounded assertions. This is it. <laughs> this is what we deal in in the absence of good evidence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We do our best. 
Um, I want to move forward to some of the 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 kind of more recent examples in folk tradition, and I suppose mm-hmm. into to look at maybe what would become slightly more maybe a bit more familiar to people when they consider Halloween or Iha Hauna. Um, mm-hmm. And to look, I suppose, at first and foremost, the names in, in folk tradition by which the festival was known. It had a couple of different names in, in Irish and in English, didn't it? Yeah, we see Samhain being the most uh, obvious one in Irish, or Iha Hauna, um, and Halloween in English, which related obviously to the festival of All Hallows, the evening before All Hallows. But other names you see would be Iha Nahamalaise, which is the night of mischief, or Ihina Glass, the night of tricks. And I think it's still very much known in Irish as Ihina Hamalaise down in the southeast of the country, around Ring, where they still speak Irish in the Beltach there, that uh, it would be known very much um, for that. And I remember um, tutoring, actually, students when the uh, folklore began to be offered as a first-year subject, and we had quite a big intake of students, and we were tutoring them, and the students from the Waterford Wexford area had this very strong sense of mischief and and games and the real old traditional ones like pulling cabbages and moving gates and things like that as if we'd planned it I have a, I have a recording here from that I got out of the archive the sound archive a tape from uh, Jim Delaney and he's collecting this is from um, Michael Walsh and he's collected this in February 1982 and he's describing the the tricks that are played in Halloween night um, I'll play this now but he hopefully you can hear it but he's talking about this, like you'd mentioned there, apart from the pulling of cabbages, the stealing of gates and how and often how kind of particularly cantankerous sorts or curmudgeonly sorts who wouldn't take it well in this in the community, they're the ones who'd be targeted. So uh, this is Mick Walsh. Well then often they take as generally old cross lads to take their gates and they'll throw them into a drain. The beer next day looking for them and they'll take a barn door off of a co-house or off of a barn or a door off of a co-house and they'll carry him off and they'll go and they'll take that man's one or two of his gates or wee little wicked gates or doors and they'll take him off somewhere else <laughs> and they'll be going around <laughs> nearly all night that was um, he's basically describing how they'd take their gates they'd throw them in a drain um, or they'd take a barn door off a cow house or they'd, they'd kind of carry them off and they'd take off two of his gates and they'd be kind of going around all night doing that. So this, this, this aspect of, um, of mischief is a kind of, is, I suppose it's a, central, it's a central part that we find in, uh, in lots of the practices around at Halloween. It is, and I have to admit that I remember when we were younger, growing up in Limerick, um, often on Halloween night, going out in disguise or semi-disguise at least and causing mischief throwing eggs and uh, I suppose because we lived in uh, in a town as well um, we were under probably no small influence from the more urban form of Halloween which involved fireworks and bangers and smoke bombs to be honest I think that comes from the um, the Guy Fawkes tradition uh, but you know which is in, in early November as well but nevertheless we used them to uh, cause our own little bit of uh, mischief and, and tricks and this notion of picking on cantankerous members of the community I think uh, there were a couple of houses which were always subject to uh, a bit more um, rigorous mischievous, chil- mischievous children yeah absolutely but uh, it's it's a complex set of ideas I think um, perhaps uh, you know the idea behind this is that there is license given on this night 
as you know again i suppose it's this old anthropologist uh, archaeologist and folklorist concept that we we'll probably keep returning to of liminality when when um we are in a change a time of change moving from summer to winter um, that the normal rules of reality tend to break down a little bit and i think there is a social license given people are allowed break the rules a little bit people know that their children are probably going out and getting up to a bit of mischief but um you know because the normal rules of reality are suspended, suspended. as long as everything is sort of brought back to normal the next yeah, day then it's, it's let the children have their fun yeah it's a funny kind of it's an interesting part of um kind of calendar custom observances like you said where you have the rules are kind of broken but not in a totally disordered or chaotic way they're kind of broken in order to I don't know, reaffirm the ties that bind in a sense that there's a breakdown in a controlled way or a suspension is a better word, way to put it that then yes. kind of uh, resumes after the thing is done. But there's another point I was chatting earlier on about um, there's a tension sometimes that you see between uh, expressions of kind of around calendar customs, say, or of folk traditions and then, say, there'll be a kind of negative response from the authorities from the state, say, where... Um, you know, there's often a lot of maybe complaints that are made around Halloween, fires being lit or antisocial behaviour or whatever. Um, and there's a certain kind of attention sometimes between, yeah, the authorities and then and then these traditional practices in the same way that you would have seen with maybe the church trying to put down um, certain counter customs and pattern days and things throughout the year, that uh, there's a certain unruly element to it, you know? Well, there is. There is. And I, I, I'm, part of it, I think, is you know, rebellion, people will rebel against authority um, and this tension that you find between official official Ireland as it is and, and what people actually get up to and what people want to get up to. Um, but I do think it's it's part of that, like you said, and it's, it's a good way of putting it about controlling it. So it's like a pressure valve. If children have to obey, if, if young people have to um, constantly be subject to the restrictions of the society, that they live in, if they're given license to misbehave in this particular way, I think um, it's it's perhaps it's healthy. It's because it, it, it you know you're given a short window in which to break the rules. People expect it. People know that it's coming, and then things return to normal. And perhaps the rules return to normal stronger than ever mm-hmm. after the tension has been sort of let you off. kind of yeah so, brush uh, brush against the guardrails or whatever. I think so. I think that's that's probably what's going on on a psychological level, or certainly in society. Um, so, and the other the other kind of I suppose the most um, familiar aspects again that we see at this time. Another part throughout the calendar year is is um, disguise. The idea of disguise, of dressing up. Sometimes men dressing up in women's clothing, women dressing up in men's clothing, and then children dressing up as kind of characters or you know mm. the dead or ghosts or whatever. Um, but that's another particularly common part of this tradition. It is. Uh, it's one of the most distinctive features of Halloween. But of course, we, we don't find it at Halloween alone. We find it on other festival days as well. On St. Bridget's Day, you have Biddy Boys. You had, in certain places, you had um, May Day customs where people would dress up in straw or in goatskin masks, that kind of thing. Straw boys at weddings, all of that kind of stuff. But... Um, I suppose it's at its most um, obvious and it's at its its most popular at, at Halloween and it's something that really persists nowadays and it's been interesting to watch the evolution of it in the last while because certainly when we were kids it was always about dressing up as scary things, supernatural things. There was a strong supernatural bent to everything 
But as time goes on, you see people dressing up more as sort of hero figures, or you see, um, you know, characters from a movie, people dressed as, uh, you know, positive and happy kind of figures as well as scary ones. So it, it, it is changing. It's constantly changing over time. But traditional ones, I think it was primarily disguised. Whether it was scary or not, one had to be disguised. And I think that was um, an important part of it. I'm not sure what, what the origin of it is specifically relating to Halloween, whether it comes from this very um, prevalent notion, this very strong idea in Halloween that the, the supernatural world in whatever way it manifests is close to our world and the two overlap substantially on that night. There's this overwhelming sense that um, other world figures can intrude into our world, that perhaps the dead are active at this time and maybe it comes from this idea that people would dress up like them in order to walk amongst them or perhaps it comes from more medieval ideas to do with um, praying for the dead, going round from house to house, sort of offering to pray for the dead in return for money or for rewards of that kind of thing. Um, maybe it was a complex evolution of a lot of these different things, but it's still very much evolving and it's still very much something in play. Um, and what you see, uh, an interesting twist on that now as well, of course, is uh, adults dressing up, um, people going to, to Halloween parties and nightclubs holding events and things like that where people will dress up. So it's gone from but it's certainly in my youth, it was primarily children who did it um, going into adults. But of course, if you go back through the folklore archives as well, there are accounts of youths and adults going around dressing up. So it's, it's something that's constantly changing and evolving. I think. There's, a, there's a piece here from the, the Urban Folklore Project, um, a recording in, it was made in Knockmitten. The Urban Folklore Project was a scheme that the department put together in 1979-1980. But it's, it describes that it's, it's um, James McPhillip is the collector and he's asking this family, you know, what used to, what used to happen at Halloween. And uh, actually it's kind of a collector's nightmare as far as transcribing the scenario goes. But there's, 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 two, there's two sisters and a brother and they all, they're all in this, it's just this one excerpt, but they're all kind of clamouring over each other to give their point, uh, which renders the tape kind of... Uh, well yeah hard to pick apart but in this part they're talking about it was an adult affair and it was men dressing as women and then women dressing as men and they're out and, and playing praying tunes and so on and, and so Halloween out here was a fantastic time oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, it was marvellous yeah. out here the women and all dressed up as men you know and they would come to yorks and blackface caps yeah. pipes and go all over the pubs you know mm. but it was only light not electric light gas light, light, light. light yeah. and the people were men and then it ended up out on the bridge Somebody playing the melodeon and dancing. Oh, fantastic! Around all the houses. They'd be grown up to Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 And well, gosh, the even the older yeah. men, we yeah. used to dress them up as women and stuff yeah. them out with furs yeah. and wigs on them. Yeah. yeah. You know, and bring them all go around. Yeah. So yeah, she described how they used to cut, they used to, you know, stuff furs and wigs on the on even the, the old men and send them out. But this is, I suppose, part of the this idea of disguise seems. To, I mean, you see it in, like you were mentioning, lots of the quarter day traditions or other social events, the Straw Boys, um, mm. and it's again kind of breaking the rules that normally apply. You know, you're calling around from house to house, making demands of people while masked. Yeah. And this notion, I mean, it's it's ritual transvesticism, if you want to give it a, a label, it's, you know, cross-dressing in, in this way. Again, I think there's a deliberate sense of uh, violating normal, probably quite restrictive rules of dress and identity and things like that. And I think it adds to the overall 
idea of chaos and, and fun and mischief and, and rule break. Yeah, yeah. And I remember reading an article in um, in Sheen three years ago about, about Halloween on Inishman. It's talking, descri- describing adults going on from house to house. Yes, and, uh, and I think, I certainly remember seeing archive footage from um, RTE of um, in the Aran Islands, people dressing up. And I, as far as I know, they still do the that to this day where the adults will get together to go to the pub but to be dressed head to foot in disguise and they'll disguise even their hands their voices no part of them will be identifiable and um Podrigan Clancy I think maybe has done some work in this area um but it, it it seems to be very much something that is I won't say taken seriously because it's obviously done in fun but but they do it in a very dedicated and 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 comprehensive kind of way so um you know they they do it well there anyway for sure and it, and it's not just children by any means it's very much an adult uh, affair so there's kind of i guess misbehaving there's disguise reversal of of normal reference points generally um, mm. but something you mentioned earlier which at all kind of can file all of this under the idea of liminality is this uh, idea of the supernatural and the boundaries between the other world and this world kind of fading away or disappearing for this certain period of time which is a strange you know, even it's a strange kind of notion to consider in, in a how would you say it, in a traditional sense that all periods of time are not the same you know all moments are not equal in a traditional view in the same sense all space is not equal there are ritual spaces supernatural places dangerous places um, but yeah. only at certain times so at dawn at dusk and then at this as this major kind of hinge at the beginning of the 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 dark part of the year uh, there's a heavy kind of I suppose, uh, consideration given to to death and to the other world or the spirits of the other world around us, the fairy host and, and so on. And uh, was it supposed to be unlucky to, to interfere with where they lived, was it? They couldn't go next to there, Because my mother's mother, my father's mother built a piece to here at the back of that wall, there. Mm. There. And we used to have a couple of sours, pigging. As Smith has said, George made the pig story there at the back of that wall. And boy, the fairies goes boy that way. Uh, it's only once a year now. How was that? What, t- what time is that? What time of the year? So, when does the fairies come? It's a Halloween. Halloween. Or and we had to build a, open a, a little, she was a pot. Wherever they go, no one ever knew. Because <coughs> they were gone now forever. And remember the man that built it, he left a little, that pushy of a wind there. He's out there. Just out here. I let them go through into knock mitten. Mm. It's something again, when we look at early records and uh, mythological tradition, um, mythological tradition is quite consistent in this view that the other world and our world are imminent at this time and it says things like um the she this 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 overarching concept that the irish have of this other world that they refer to as the she that um there's nothing that could happen in these she mounds that was not visible on on Samhain because um it was believed that the portals were open these these particular places in the landscape and uh, that had supernatural uh, association and again very often archaeological places places like uh, Newgrange or Schlievenaman or these um, old burial tombs 
um, that these were considered transition points between our world and this nebulous concept of the other world, and that they were open. There are lots of stories. There's um, stories from the Fenian tradition, which talks about Alain the Burner, uh, who was uh, a figure. Burn down the fort every, every sound. He, yeah, he used to come to Tara and burn it down, and uh, Fionn McCool used various magical machinations in order to stay awake while he chanted uh, a sleeping um, sleep music. And then he slaughtered Alain, and this was the, the thing that propelled him into sort of true hero status, and be, he became the leader of the Fionn. But uh, another great story from Halloween as well, from Sound, Set at Sound, um, is the Achtra Nere, the adventure of Nere. And again, it, it, it talks about um, this great warrior from uh, Rathcrohan who had to go out and tie a spancel around the foot of a corpse that had been hanged from the gallows. And the other warriors were too afraid to do it because of um, this supernatural beings that were emerging and coming out and frightening them all. He manages to do it. He ties a spancel around the corpse's uh, leg and then they go off on an adventure. The corpse can speak, of course. Uh, they have to go and get a drink of water. Um, and the corpse, it, he causes the death of people in a nearby house. Yeah, doesn't um, he say there, there's a, there's, they come to one house and there's a happy couple in there and they can't go in and they come to yeah, another there's, one there's and they, houses, they can, they can go into houses. a house that where the couple are arguing or they're, or they're praying in one they can't go in there happiness in another can't go in there and there's one house there's discord and it's like yep yeah, we'll stay the night here and that's where yeah and but it was um they also he, they found uh, a ring of fire around one of the houses and they found uh, a moat of water around the other of the houses and this uh, i think it's to do with the idea of throwing out the ashes that this would create a sort of protective barrier around the house um, or throwing out dirty water. Um, and these were things that I think people refrained from doing on, on Halloween. But uh, it was the house that had n no protection from this magical ring of fire or this magical moat of water that he, he, the corpse was able to go into. And he took a swig of water and spat the water out onto the people and it killed them. But then um, they return. He, he near has had enough of this. Uh, killer corpse that he's carrying around on his back so he brings it back to the gallows and when he goes back he sees a supernatural um, army emerging from the, the the other world and they come and they attack um, the palace that he had just left um, it's a convoluted story and we won't go too far down the rabbit hole but essentially he's seeing a vision of the future and he ends up in the other world for um, quite a long period of time but when he returns from the other world to this world uh, only a short period of time has passed. And this is something, I think, which speaks to um, the geography of the other world is quite strange. It doesn't work the same way as ours, and neither does timekeeping in the other world. Um, you know, you, we've seen it in the story of um, Oshin Atirnano. He spends a short amount of time there, and hundreds of years have passed. And we see almost the opposite in the adventure of Nira, where he goes for what seems like a sh um, quite a long period of time, and only a short period of time has passed. But he brings spring flowers with him. He brings primrose and golden fern and wild garlic, um, which will only grow in the spring and summer. And he brings these back as proof that he has been to this uh, other world residence. And... Um, so space, time, all of these things are in flux. And, uh, and I think the, the, the drawing this clear boundary between the world of mortals and the world of whether it was the world of the dead or the world of whatever the she represent. Are they the old gods? Are they supernatural beings? Are they some complex combination of all of these? Um, it seems that they were, as you know, 
the Irish are always trying to, all the way through the medieval period and into modern times, are trying to wrap their head around what, what is this community, this supernatural community. Sometimes they look like the dead, sometimes they look like the old gods, sometimes they look like spirits of the land. Um, so people are always trying to work it out and figure it out. But one thing that's fairly consistent is that whatever they are and whatever they represent, they're active at sound and you would do well to steer clear of them and uh, not get in their way. Otherwise, great mischief and trouble can befall you. Um, there's there's something you mentioned there about about the ashes of the fire and, and and water and and kind of the preparation of the house on this night with this kind of other world interference. I want I want to play another piece from uh, Patsy Johnson, Patrick Johnson from from near Moton County, Westmeath. This is again a tape recording of the archive here from uh, from Jim Delaney, and he's interviewing in 1964. He's interviewing Patsy Johnson, who's 82 at that time, but he's talking at this about. Um, 
Patsy describing his father putting great kind of um, importance on, on getting the house ready on this line, cleaning it up, getting wa- clean water down and not being allowed to throw out the ashes. So I'll play this here if you know. Well, did you ever hear him, your father talking about people getting the house ready and cleaning it up, not raking the fire? I did. That night? I did. Or the night before that? I, uh, it was the Holland night. Yeah. And everyone that time would have clean water put in. Yeah. A bucket of clean water. And the next, I says, what did they want, would He'd say, any t- water in tonight? No, well, it has to be in for tonight. And I say, what are you talking about, the clean water? What has to be in for? Well, the good people is supposed to be in every house that go round about and has a great time tonight. And often a child has to be baptized or washed the ones that cover the water and if it's not there something in the house will be done or a pig a day and you or something I see. But the water is supposed to be there for that night I see. that's all now well, and you're not supposed to throw out dashes of two nights november night and the night after you're not supposed to throw out that for three or four days and the cure that was in that thing, it kill lace. You put that ashes dry upon a base that have lace in them, and it kill the lace. I see. That's all. Now, I can know about that. So in that tape, he's describing, you know, the sense that, that the fairies come into the house in that night, that they have a great time, uh, but that the house needs to be in good order and that the, the water has to be clean. But he mentions then that you're not supposed to throw out the ashes for three or four days. Uh, and he describes how he says the uh, and the, there was a cure that would kill lice that you'd put the ash you put the dry ashes upon a beast uh, and a farm animal that would have lice on them and it would kill the lice. Um, so there's the kind of secondary uses of these ordinary objects, but only at specific times. You can't go kind of um, you know rubbing ashes on your cat on a Tuesday in January or whatever. It has to be it has to be at this specific time, this specific day. And and another another point point that you'd mentioned about um, this reference to kind of. The, the, the borders, the boundaries between this world and the other world being suspended, and again, in whatever sense that is, because there's so much, there's so many complex variations about it in tradition. There's a, there's a piece here from, we have these wonderful um, uh, questionnaires that the, that the Folklore Commission sent out in 1943 on the topic of, of Halloween and sound. And to, so the questionnaire system was a way, um, for people listening who aren't familiar, of, of collecting traditions on, on, on practices regarding certain um, aspects of folk tradition. Um, via a postal system, basically based on a Swedish system, where they they that's how they carried out an enormous amount of their collections, where questionnaires, detailed questionnaires, would be drawn up and distributed around the country, and then the returns would all be kind of um, bound, paginated, and catalogued, and so on. And this is a piece from from West Meath, and it's talking about the fairies, and it says here, yes, the fairies are supposed to be around on Holly Eve night, but the only local places that I know to be associated with them are Clonlon and Castle and some hill near a fort on the west side of uh, Nakadowney. Here it is said by the local locals that the sweetest of music may be heard on each succeeding Holly Eve night. The castle ruin is about a mile and a half southwest of Moat. The fort on the western side of Nakadowney is also said to have been a residence of the Omelachlans. In fact, King Malachy is said to have lived here, and a cave there is there, which is still called King Malachy's Cave. Here again, sweet music is to be heard on Holly Eve night. 
while in a hilly field to the east locally called the Silver Hill, the fairies are said to play their football matches and one may hear the shouts and hear the football hopping, not alone on Holly Eve, but any evening at all. So there are these kind of, I mean, you'll find references that up and down the country all over the place that the fairies are moving from their summer quarters to their winter quarters. And like you were saying, Biddy, that you need to kind of, you need to take extra care at this time to, to protect yourself, basically. Yeah, and it's what I think, again, speaks to this ambiguity and how people are constantly struggling with this idea is that some some communities and some traditional uh, accounts of Halloween, they're unambiguous and they say that it's the dead, it's the spirits of the dead that return on Halloween or the day after Halloween, the night after Halloween. And then others talk about it being the fairies. So tradition has never really made its mind up about who or what either of those communities are precisely supposed to be. So in some places you'll see the fairies coming into the house and sitting down and eating food. And then in other places, particularly um, on the feast, the eve of the Feast of All Souls rather than All Saints, which is the 1st of November, um, people would leave out food for the dead. They would leave the door on the latch and they genuinely believed in this, you know, not a, not in a scary way or not in a, in a threatening way that the dead would return and you know for them I think the the idea seems to be that um, this was a way of making loved ones feel that they're not forgotten and that people still remember them and it was a way I think of easing the transition of souls into the other world that if they came back to check say yes we still remember you we still respect you and um, and this perhaps allowed people to transition into the other world but, uh, you know, again, the, these ideas are people are working them out over time and working them out over space. Certain certain parts of Ireland vary. Um, but, you know, part of that as well, I think, is to do with the history of Halloween as a festival. Um, Samhain is almost certainly quite old. It's almost certainly prehistoric in origin. But we see the, the Feast of All Saints and the Feast of All Souls, which are the 1st and 2nd of November and, you know, the night before being the 31st and the 1st, that these were not originally um, situated at that time of year and that they were moved um, in the medieval period. Whether it's coincidence or not, I don't think it was coincidence that they were moved to coincide with these very important, um, this pre-existing festival that was quite important. But again, it speaks to the evolution of something that's changing over time as well. And there's an awful lot of Christian tradition to do with the dead and visiting the dead and and um, praying for the souls of the dead as well. But, you know, when purgatory was a concern of people that they would pray for the souls of the dead in the other world um, to, to get them from purgatory into heaven. So, uh, you know, this adds to this numinous sense, the sense that there's something else active around this time. Um, and whether the dead were originally associated with prehistoric salon or whether it was just whatever the fairies represent or not, it's hard to say, but it's a complex set of ideas that have fallen together and given us this very rich uh, traditions of what modern Halloween is now. Yeah. I want to just read another piece just from what you're describing there from, from the, the um, it fits in what you were saying there, this is again from the, from the Halloween questionnaires here in the, in the archives in the folklore collection. This is a piece from County Clare and just on that topic it says, deceased relatives were said to have visited their own homes on All Souls Night. Older people were supposed to leave a pipe filled with tobacco and some matches nearby for the old head of the house on his return from eternity. The fire was scarcely slacked at all and the door left on the latch. So there's a kind of symbolic welcoming, um, you know, preparing the table, preparing the house, leaving the windows open sometimes, leaving the doors open. Um, which again, I suppose it's just that, same, that strange, that, that kind of 
complex ideas about a sense of transition and and uh, things moving around at this time basically but in a kind of strange slightly supernatural way yeah but it's it's interesting to see people sort of making their peace with that they're aware that the dead are coming and and they make space for that in their home and they accommodate that in their belief systems and um it seems to be a respectful quiet kind of affair um that the dead should be made welcome in this way there's um to to kind of consider another aspect of the that one of the characteristics of the feast um and we talked about some of the tricks and kind of mischief that people would get up to but there was also again on account of the liminality maybe that this isn't something that you can do on a on a Tuesday in January type thing but the idea of divination on this night that the um again with with you know things in a state of flux that you could look to certain ordinary household objects but that they'd be imbued on this evening with a kind of secondary purpose that could maybe fill you in on what what was due to happen to you throughout yeah, the year. Yeah, I think so. Um, and again, one would wonder, is the notion of, of divination, does this stretch back to the ancient customs of Halloween, whether people believe that knowledge or ideas or you know information could be gleaned from supernatural sources because they were close to our world? Or is, is there a more mundane origin for that, that really, you know... Um, making predictions on the first day of winter, how is the rest of this festival going, to, or how this season going to go? So maybe just by virtue of the fact that it was a turning point that people wanted to make predictions. But whatever the origin of it, it's it's certainly something that's very widespread. Um, I know we practiced it growing up as well, playing Halloween games and divination games. Um, and the, the archives and the, the accounts of Halloween in recent centuries are very consistent with this idea that people believed that they could see into the future at this time, that they could tell who people were going to marry or that they could tell what the weather was going to be like for the rest of the season. And uh, like I said, we played some divination games as well with uh, the skins of apples and uh, pouring wax into water to make shapes, to see that these shapes uh, indicate what somebody was going to do in the future. Um, the games that you know where you lay out saucers with water and soil and things like that these are all games that we played as well um, growing up so there's a lot to it and uh, we find it in most parts of Ireland this notion of divination there's a, another type of recording here from it's Dahio Hogan and he's recording uh, from his mother um, and it's he's he's asking her about kind of some of the customs around at this time concerning divination but she mentions burning of nuts that they'd be placed in the grate in the fire and that if, if they each one would be named for a man and a woman and if they jumped beside each other, then those kind of sweethearts would be married, whatever. And if they'd burn on the spot or if they'd jump away from each other, then the, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't marry. So I'll play that here. What about Halloween then? Uh, Halloween it was much the same now, but I don't think they do it very much now. We'd have um, the apples, you know, mm. and to try and catch one hanging out of a string and trying to catch and that sort of thing. You'd have a saucer, you'd have clay on that, another saucer, you'd have water on it, another saucer, and you'd have a ring on it. Forget the rest of them, and you'd be blindfolded, each one would be blindfolded, and they'd go over whichever one they'd put their hand into. If you put your hand on the ring, you'd be married the first, and you put your hand on the water, you'd cross the sea. And if you put your hand in the clay, you'd die before the first. <laughs> so... And ah, that'll go on. Said much. I think much the same happens now, but I don't think they do it so often now. And something like in the forest or something. Um, oh no, that was Halloween too. I'd say. Mm -hmm. 
you'd have the hazel nuts. Yeah. And you know the great the bars of a grate, with the big fires we used to have with the, the bars going across mm. the grate. You know these, they were, but they were big ones mm. with a hob at each side. But you put a, a lot of little nuts along the bars there, you see. And um, you call one nut, you say that's Katie if she was there, we'd say. Another one is Johnny's, another one is Paddy's and Lizzie's and so on along. And the first one that would blow, with the heat of the fire, you see, it would make one move and hit the others, that sort of thing. And um, I can't remember now exactly what, what was the ending up of it. But they were supposed to get married. Mm. I, that was it. They were supposed to get married. If one hit the other, one this side hit a girl at the other side and so on. They used to put them the way a man and a woman, a man and a woman and so on like that. And that's the notes. So that was, again, just... Um well, yeah, a reference to the idea of this, this divination, basically, that, um, like you're saying, we look to the future or at this time that um, what's in store for us in the year ahead is, is kind of can be revealed. Um, either who will you marry or will you even be alive, <laughs> which is useful to know. Um, and, but there's so to, to kind of, I mean, there's so, there's so much you could kind of keep exploring with this and it's hard to, to just we're just kind of scratching the surface with the read. But um, one of the things that you you're an expert on and that I wanted to kind of to, to see how it links in as well to, to Halloween um, is the festival, the eve of, or the feast of St. Martin on the 11th of November. And is, this is kind of a particularly strange um, feast date, really, or a festival that involves ritual sacrifice in the home, but seems to have been originally related to sound. Was it moved because of the Gregorian Julian calendar kind of thing, or, or what's happening there? I don't think so. I think the move happened before that. Um, the way in which St. Martin's Day was observed was by, like you said, ritual animal sacrifice. And the most common thing in recent centuries was um, people would shed the blood of fowl, a goose or a cockerel or something like that. And it was most often done um, on the doorstep of the house at sundown on the night before the Feast of St. Martin. So a threshold place at a threshold time, it's, it's the, the, the theme keeps cropping up over and over again. But um, my research sort of pointed me towards the, the likelihood that this ceremonial or ritual slaughter of animals was probably something that took place at Samhain. Um, and it was really, I think, with the coming of the Anglo-Norman regime who would have had more devotion to St. Martin, or at least St. Martin's Day was an important um, economic as well as religious day for them. The Irish retained, I think, the notion of Samhain being the important uh, feast day. This was the day um, when people would pay tribute to their Lord when the taxes were, were due. Um, and very often the way they did that was by um, slaughtering animals and giving the, the meat, paying, paying tribute to their Lord or to their king um, with meat. So when the Anglo-Normans came, we see the establishment of St. Martin's Fairs and these become the primary um, commercial and trading and uh, um, events, I suppose, in the year. And also rent being due on St. Martin's Day rather than Samhain. The Anglo-Normans would not have observed Samhain, I don't think, as an economic day. It was more St. Martin's Day. So the, the, I think the ceremonial and the ritual elements that were probably once associated with Samhain, you know, both St. Martin's Day and Samhain occur around the time of year when you're slaughtering animals anyway the animals that have been feeding all summer and are not you you don't want to be feeding them fodder for the winter or you don't think they're going to make it through the winter or that they're ready for slaughter really at that time and um, so you're killing animals anyway 
and I think it was something that originally occurred in the Festival of Samhain and was moved in the medieval period for political reasons, for economic reasons. It moved to St. Martin's Day. You know, one of the things you see in early literature is people feasting on pigs and, and fresh meat at Samhain. And of course, we'll know from the medieval period and from modern times that meat is is absolutely not eaten at Samhain. Um, you, people would eat barmbrack, they would eat mashed potatoes. So it's a day of abstinence, yeah. Um, and that's not how it was originally. So um, I think the abstinence thing came in later, and particularly after this time when slaughter and feasting and the eating of fresh meat had already moved to St. Martin's Day. And it was really in that context, in St. Martin's Day context, that it continued on. And um, what you see is, um, like you said, everyday or mundane substances taking on particular uh, significance. And the blood from the animals that were shed on St. Martin's Day, um, blood was normally consumed. You know, the people would eat the blood of a pig or eat the blood of a goose. But the blood that was shed on St. Martin's Day was a sacred substance. People used it to um, mark the doorstep. They would, um, in Galway, they would... Um, place blood on the foreheads of children in order to keep them safe for the year so the blood went from being a mundane foodstuff into something of a sacred and a prophylactic substance um, and I think what you also see at the other end of the year then is um, people would shed the blood of cattle at Bialtana at the 1st of May and again this was done you know for their health they wouldn't slaughter them but they would shed some of their blood at that time and this was supposedly for their health. But there's a there's an account of um, by William Wilde, and he talks about the great fort at Rathcrohan, where um, cattle had been gathered up together, and they would shed the blood on the ground at this place. And in some places, they, in some instances, they burnt the blood as well. So the blood in this case is seems to be operating in the same way that it does at St. Martin's Day. And it kind of hints, I think, towards this dual part of the year, this two-part division of the year. Blood as a sacred substance at Bialtana, blood as a sacred substance at Samhain, and then that transferring 10 days later to St. Martin's Day. And one a very common expression that you find to do at St. Martin's Day as well is so nine nights and a night without counting, so ten nights, um, from Halloween to St. Martin's Day. So there was this very strong um, memory in tradition that St. Martin's Day and Halloween were linked and that it, they moved from ten, moved it on ten days, that they, the, the significance changed. Is this a Shan sound? You know that some people would reference Shan, shan sound. That, just to complicate matters further, there was another sort of, 10-day jump in the calendar as well which uh, happened like you alluded to earlier from the move moving from the um, Julian to the Gregorian calendar but I don't think I think the process of, of St. Martin's Day taking over from sound had well and truly it, it had been in for centuries by the time that that came in but what you do see um, is certain places where St. Martin's Day was not historically observed you see um this notion of Shan Samhain, and this is particularly the case in, in Ulster, where uh, St. Martin's Day traditions, for fairly complex historical reasons, um, they didn't survive into modern times, but uh, and that is to do with the, the Julian and Gregorian calendar, so the memory of Old Halive, as they called it, or Old Halotide, or Old, old uh, Shanahawan, um, though that is where you find that sort of 10-day discrepancy. So it's kind of confusing, but... Um, 
I think it's primarily the Anglo-Normans. We can put it down to them. Yeah. Uh, what do the Romans ever do for us? Uh, <laughs> I'm going to play um, a, a piece that brings this this out and then um, just it references again, collected by Jim Delaney. This is from, from Offaly, uh, again from, from uh, Michael Walsh, 1982, and he's describing sacrifices in honour of St. Martin. We were talking, uh, well, go ahead now, we were talking about St. Martin's Day. Yeah, that's the 11th of November, isn't it? Yeah. You said they're doing the still in the mountain. Well, the, the, the wood carry on, yeah, yeah, to do, yeah, and we've done it here. Yeah. And done it a couple of years ago, and yeah, you forgot. Yeah. And what day would you do it? And Dave, you see. The Eve, was it? Dave is St. Martin's yeah. Day, and isn't that the 11th of November, I think? Yes, that's right. And there's no mill wheel will turn that day. Yes. There's no one will thrive. Hmm. Because St. Martin was ground up in a mill. Yeah. On that day, yeah. that was the did the martyrdom to give him. Yeah. in and was ground up into beads. Yeah. No mill wheel had turned or the wooden. They had, and I see a machine man coming up, and a Protestant machine man, Harry Hodgins, sir. Then what is his name? I think he's dead since. I'd be doing the pause. Hmm. Well, it'll come on the day before November Day. And, and, or before Saint Martin's Day. There'd be no trash on the next day. Mm. Then they wouldn't let anyone trash. Mm. But that's they don't know, I suppose. There's no trash in snow because it's trashed in the field. Yeah. And But the cock would be killed. Yeah. St. Martin's Eve, or a chicken, or a toad, the late. But generally one good cock. Mm. And the blood would be sprinkled on the doorsteps. Mm. Maybe, and I used to shake in the door and everything. Maybe brought in the gear around the house. Did they do, well, the, did they do this? The did, stables? Uh, any of them that does it, does it still. Yeah. Do they do the people. Yeah. I'll kill the cock St. Martin's Eve. Yeah. And I'll sprinkle it the doorstep. Well, that keeps away diseases and things like that. Yeah. You see, that's... That was what it's done for. That's partly what it's done, honouring St. Martin yeah. and asking his intercession. And killing the cock in his donor of God and in donor of him to intercede and shaking the blood on the doorsteps. Wasn't well, it a great custom? Yeah. Did they do the outside houses? No, not that I know. Yeah. So, some mood, all right, some yeah. mood. Yeah. It protects man and beast, but right. the house had do for all. Oh, because that's an old custom. It is very. Again, yeah. So, that's just a, a description of the. the uh, the, the kind of sacrifices being made in the house, like you mentioned, Billy, the kind of mm. slaughter of animals, um, and that also no mill wheel would turn, and as he as he eloquently put that uh, Martin was kind of squashed to bits, and, and that was his <laughs> martyrdom. And so in honour of that, that, that people refrain from um, uh, from turning wheels and things on that day. But uh, it's an amazingly kind of complex um, landscape, I suppose, of, of ritual and imaginative kind of artistry and creativity and so on, with the whole Samhain festival, really. It is, and you know, it's never, it's not static. It, it has been ever evolving. And when you're talking about these really big concepts of life and death, and where do people go after they die, and you know, the idea of the you know, the dead moving among us, and the cycle of the year, these are all the biggest questions that we have to answer. And it's no surprise, I think, that people are coming to grips with this in very different ways, and that that would evolve and change according to society's perspectives on it and what society needs in a festival like this as well. And um, 
you know, the modern commercialization of Halloween, for all the lamenting we might do about it, um, has actually offered a sort of a, a framework against which much older con um, ideas and concepts and practices can still persist. So it sometimes surprises me about, you know, the Hollywoodization of Halloween and commercialization of Halloween. There's still some really old traditional gems that, um, that persist in it. And, you know, because it's such a complex and multifaceted thing, you know, it's changing before our eyes. There's, there's never one particular definition of what Halloween actually is or what Samhain actually is. It's something for the ages and something that, you know, continues to evolve and grow. Um, thanks so much, Billy, for, for being with us. It's fantastic. I'm totally delighted. And we could kind of keep, I mean, there's so much to consider, but I hope it gives a bit of an overview, a kind of brief, maybe just a point of some of the, point, the, the points of departure that, that we kind of, I suppose, see at this time at the festival. And to close, I'm going to finish. There's, there's um, you sent me, Billy, some, some, you are involved in kind of creations of these old Iron Age instruments, Bronze Age instruments, Iron Age instruments, are we? <laughs> Iron Age and both, I've made both, but this one is uh, the one that I sent you was a replica of the Loch Ness Shade trumpet. And this is uh, a bronze musical instrument which was found beside the, the great um, temple at Awanmacha or Navanfort. Um, it was one of four instruments that were found, so I recorded four tracks just to, just to see what uh, four of them would have sounded like together. Um, and then I think you've you've uh, woven your digital magic over that yeah, as well. Yeah, lots of old analog synthesizers to put over. Yeah, but it, who knows? Perhaps this kind of music or the, these sounds accompanied the old um, sound festivals, or observances, sacrifices. Who knows what they were getting up to uh, at Awan Macha way back in the distant past. Whether it is or not, it's nice to indulge in the imagination, particularly at this time of year as well. Agreed. And uh, so I'm going to play a piece from, yeah, bits of my synthesizers over over the recording you've done. And um, just before we go then, just to say thank you so much for, for coming along and, and chatting to us this evening. Um, and then where can people kind of find more about your own work and what can they, or what are you doing for, for Halloween? Oh, good question. Um, I have a website which is tradition.ie and if people are interested they can sort of keep up with the various different bits and pieces um, that I'm up to there but um, you know I suppose part of the I, I said I suppose that I started off in art college and I don't think I ever left art college in my mind in certain respects so I like to combine art and performance along with my academic studies and my you know unending interest in folklore so part of that project um, is devising these sort of ceremonies, if you want to call them that, or great assemblies at some of these festival times of the year at Belton and at Samhain. So we'll be having a, a big party uh, in Dolan's in Limerick on Halloween night. Um, we're calling it a uh, pagan rave. That'll so if, if there's more uh, information about that available on the website, if people are interested, it's a sort of an ongoing investigation into the intersecting of art and performance and folklore and history but uh, it's very much something new so but it's uh, part it's part of the, the what's so enjoyable is the creative kind of reinterpretation and interpretation of living tradition and using it as an imaginative force yes yeah. uh, it's incredible i'll put i'll put a link in the soundcloud description for people if they want to see more about um, about billy's site and um but yeah just to say thanks again thanks so much and um, to hope that people out there enjoyed and uh, hopefully you'll come on again and chat to us and talk more. Thank sense. you, Chani. Grimila Mahagat. Walter Alt. All right, Mahagat Sloan.